every good sermon should start with a gripping tale or some sort of you know, thing to grab your attention. So I'm going to start with uh, a 2019 report to the General Assembly. Uh, uh, nothing grabs attention like a report. Isn't that word? Anyway. Um, in this report to the General Assembly, they're talking about the state of Scotland today. They're talking about numbers like perhaps 2% of the country being born-again Christians. Very, very low. And so in this report, they write, Evangelicals need to understand the times and come to terms with reality. That is the reality of that low number of Christians. They say the challenge we face is not revival, but the re-evangelization of Scotland. Churches need to become missional in their thinking and living, willing to train leaders and plant churches. So we don't need revival, we need re-evangelization. That's what they're saying. Why do they say that? Revival is like rain after a drought. When the land is cracked and parched and thirsty, these times of revival that come down from the Lord, we've seen them throughout biblical history, we've seen them in, in the modern era. Scotland is not a stranger to revival. But it's like the rains falling on a thirsty land that they remember what they're supposed to do again. It's a time of refreshment coming down from the Lord to restore life that was kind of lost, that had kind of atrophied away. But when there are no plants, to, there's nothing to drink the water, we're not in revival territory anymore. With the numbers that we have in Scotland now, we're in missionary territory. We need re-evangelization. We need to bring the gospel to people now for the first time, not for the second time. In Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia, the situation was much the same in Paul's day. We actually get the backstory to this letter in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17 particularly. But in 16, we see that Paul is uh, he's with Silas and he's going a certain direction and he's, his heart is set on going over here. And all of a sudden, he has a dream from the Lord of a Macedonian man who urges Paul to come over to Macedonia. So Paul switches gears, and he moves you know, with great intent, as he does everything, to Macedonia. And in chapter 17 of Acts, Paul and Silas go to the capital of Macedonia, which is Thessalonica. Now, Paul's typical ministry model is to uh, find a synagogue in whatever city he's at, so a place of, of worship of uh, a meeting of the Jews who have been scattered out over the last so many years. And uh, the, the synagogues are also full of what are called uh, God-fearers, and that would be non-Jews who also worship and serve the Hebrew God. So Paul does what he usually does, and he finds a synagogue in Thessalonica. And Acts 17 says three Sabbaths in a row, he's in that synagogue persuading, reasoning from the scriptures to show them very specifically, that Jesus is the Messiah for whom they've been longing all of this time. And it says that many Jews were persuaded, and some God-fearing Greeks, and I think it says not a few influential women, joined him in this. So all of a sudden there's a gospel movement in Macedonia, and it's beginning to take root, and there's signs of life, and it's coming alive. But the Jews who don't believe the message, they get very jealous. And so they go to persecute uh, and punish 
Paul and Silas. So Paul and Silas kind of evacuate the region. They leave. They go on about their, their work. And the believers who remain in Thessalonica now, this little brand new baby church, they fall under the persecution. Now, Paul eventually, you know, he goes, I think, to Ephesus and Athens and Corinth, and he gets worried about these new believers in, in Thessalonica. And so he sends his dear friend Timothy back to check on them. Timothy goes back, Paul moves, I think, perhaps to Corinth, and Timothy comes back and finds him and gives just a glowing report. He says, Paul, this is going really well. The church is really healthy. This is great. And as Paul and Silas got that report and traveled throughout the rest of Macedonia and Achaia doing evangelism and missions work and church planting, they found that the road had been cleared out ahead of them because the faith of the Macedonians got famous. It made evangelization really easy. It opened doors. It made things more fruitful. So I want to find out, I want to understand what happened in Thessalonica. I want that for us here, don't you? What, how did the Thessalonian church come alive to God in such a way that everybody took notice of it? Look at verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. To be a missional church, we have to be a church that has come alive by the power of God. So what gave the church such vitality? The answer comes in, in verse 3, and then in, in verse 9 and 10. So first, let's read verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we find those categories, faith, love, and hope, as bookends in this section of the letter. He starts with them, and then he ends with them, and what comes in the middle kind of fleshes that out of what he means. So now at the end of this passage, verse 9 and 10, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming of Faith, love, and hope. So we're going to examine those three categories today. And I was asking myself this question. I always have mild panic attacks um, at the kind of end of preparing a sermon where I go, why, why am I preaching this text? Why did I choose this again? Can I do this? Should I switch something else? And I, and I realized, I remembered... I chose this text because I need to be reminded that the gospel has power. I get the gospel in my head. I intellectually assent to the gospel. I say yes and nod in my head. Yes, I understand that. It's good. It's true. But Paul says the gospel is the power of God. I think we barely believe that. So, faith works produced by faith, as the NIV says. So number one, what does it look like when faith works? Verse nine. They tell how you turned to God 
from idols. Turning to God from idols. You cannot, it's the very nature of turning. You can't turn from something to nothing. <laughs> right? You, you have eyes that see, and if you're looking this direction and you turn over here, you're looking at something else. You're always turning from something to another thing. And so we find that the, the Thessalonian church received the gospel with such power that it was able to kind of pry their fingers off of these dead idols and instead fill it with the gospel. That was a bad metaphor. Gaze was better. It turned their gaze from what had captivated their attention and held them captive to God. The gospel came with the power needed to turn from a lifeless idol to the living God. Someone once said the gospel is not the presentation of an idea, but an operation of a power. That's how Paul talks about the gospel, and that's how he works it out. Now, they turn from idols. This is interesting because in Acts 17 we learned that these were not um, idol-worshipping pagans. They were Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So what does Paul mean? Well, we learn from reading all of Paul's letters that Paul has a really um, careful concept of what idolatry is. It's a very biblical and obviously thoroughly um, true and nuanced concept of idolatry. And it's simply this. Idolatry is anything we trust other than Jesus for our okayness. If there's anything that has the grip of our heart so much that we say, if I lose that thing, I don't know if I can make it. I'm not going to be okay if this is taken from me. If I don't get that thing, I'll never feel safe. I'll never feel secure. We all wrestle with idols. Our heart comes up with new ones all of the time. And we turn from this one to God and we think we're safe and another one springs up in its place. It's like whack-a-mole. Do you have that game in Scotland? Whack-a-mole? Yeah, it's good. In Psalm 135, we learn, uh, the psalmist writes that the idols of the nations are silver and gold, made with human hands, having mouths they do not speak, having eyes they do not see, having ears they do not hear, nor is their breath in their mouth, and those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So these idols, on the one hand, not only are they lifeless and dead, but we learn a really important truth that we become like what we worship. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who put their trust in them. So, if we're worshiping these idols, which we may not feel like we're worshiping idols, but whenever we lean on something more than Jesus, it's what we're doing, we're becoming like that thing, lifeless. Conversely, if you turn from the idol to God, the living and true God, we come alive. We come absolutely alive. So that kind of faith that turns to God, faith breeds repentance. Peter in Acts 11 says that repentance leads to life. So faith drives us into repentance, which drives us into life. Here's how um, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. Question 87. This is one of my favorites. It's so succinct and just packed. Question 87. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Repentance unto life is turning from the thing to God because God gives 
life. So when you get a sense of your sin, take hold of the mercy of God in Christ. If I were to write that, I would have said, uh, you know, when you get a sense of your sin, wallow in it for a while and feel really bad about yourself. Or run from it and ignore what's wrong about it. That's my tendency. But the Bible tells us to just apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. Take hold of the cross and take your sin to it where it is dealt with. Then we turn from the sin to God and we live. And when we repent, turning to God from our idols, Paul makes it clear in verse 7, you become an encouragement to the brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not private individuals. People are watching. People notice. The way that we live our lives can build up other people. Don't we want that? So our very repentance is actually the thing that bolsters the faith of the the person next to you in the pew, as it were. And it also confounds the watching world. So faith works in repentance. In other words, repentance is a work produced by faith. So repentance unto life is what the Thessalonian church is exhibiting. And we have to have that too. Only comes by the gospel received in power. So number two, what does it look like then when love labors? When love labors, the second half of verse nine, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So there's the labor that we're talking about. It's serving God. You don't just turn and then it doesn't stop with the turning. Now you endeavor after new obedience. You go in the direction that you're facing and you serve God. Now, serving our idols ends up meaning that we serve ourselves. That's what the end of it means. So if we're, if we're not serving God, but if we're actually serving our idols, other people either will become invisible to you or a means to an end. Rungs of a ladder to step on to get where you want to go. It's vicious. Idols are vicious and ruthless, and there's no mercy in them. And our idols never died for your sins, by the way. They want you to die for your sins. But serving God is exchanging our priorities for his priorities. We just submit ourselves to him and say, what I want doesn't matter anymore. My priorities are broken. I don't see clearly. I need your priorities. I need your eyes. I need your heart. G.K. Bill puts it this way. He says, God's unconditional love poured out in our heart is the unique force impelling us to love God and others. So when the love of God is poured into our heart through apprehending the mercy of God in Christ at the cross, well, what is the love of God like? It's outward-focused. It serves. It loves. It sacrifices. It pursues. It seeks. It's tender. It's gentle. It's toward other people. It's not for its own ends. When we are filled with that kind of love of God, we become others-focused as we become more God-focused. His priorities become our priorities, and we begin to love what and who God loves. So when love labors, we serve God and serve others. That's what it looks like. Jesus says it this way in John 13, I think. He says, this is the way, this is the greatest apologetic for Christ 
that, that God sent Jesus into the world. He said, how will the world know? It's the way you love each other. Here's what Paul says about how the Thessalonians were loving each other, were laboring in love and serving God. Later in, this chap- in uh, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you, are, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. What a glowing review from the Apostle Paul. He's like, I don't even have to mention it. God taught you this. I want to be taught by God how to love, don't you? The world will notice that. So what does it look like when hope endures? Verse 10. The second half of 9 and 10. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, faith and love, hope, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So a hope that endures, it's unshakable, isn't it? It remains, it stays put, it waits. The kind of waiting we talked about this morning, not a, not a um, you know, motionless rest sort of a thing, but a waiting for someone else to act, you know? Not being caught unexpected. But here's the thing. They know there's a coming wrath. That's crucial. Hope is only hope if you have kind of some, a foil to measure it up against, right? If, you're, if the future is all roses and daisies, there's no need for hope anymore. But if we know, we all know the future is incredibly grim in a sense that the wrath of God is coming. So because of that, we need a hope and we have a hope in Christ. The wrath of God will fall like fire, but do you know where the safest place to be is in a forest fire? It's in the part of the forest that's already burned up. And faith unites us to Christ by the power of the Spirit and puts us right there. So we have a hope that when the fire falls, we have a certain hope. We'll be safe. So why does he say, whom he raised from the dead? That's a weird thing to say there, isn't it? So steadfast hope, enduring hope, it looks ahead to Christ returning, but it looks back at Christ's suffering. Hope looks backward to the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. The certainty of the resurrection of Jesus is the certainty of our resurrection. We can never lose that. Paul says, if that's not true, we're to be most pitied above all men. Everything, all, we're staking everything on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Certain hope of the future by looking back at the past. If Jesus raised from the dead, so will we. Are you certain of his resurrection? Is that something you wrestle with? Unless you are, you'll always have a corner of fear in the back of your minds. You'll never know for sure. But throw yourself at Jesus and he will not let you down. It is the safest place 
to be when the fire falls. The wrath of God already fell on Jesus for your sins. That's an absolutely sure hope of a very bright future. So we look back at Christ's resurrection and we look forward to the certain hope of our own. And if we have such a firm hope, what can man do to us? Paul says that the Thessalonians received the gospel in the midst of severe suffering with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit doles out joy to people who receive the gospel in suffering. He gives us hope. Who doesn't want that? So meditating on Christ's resurrection and our resurrection puts a steel in our spines, doesn't it? Gives us the courage to walk out into this dark world and face absolutely anything. So when the gospel comes in word and power, and the gospel is the power of God, when the gospel is received, it gives us kind of a gospel grit. And we can face anything. Let's pray.